0: You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey. Read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon page and podiobooks.com. The full book is available in podio book format at podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. 4. Serpents and Mermaids Max came to in a giant outdoor theater of some kind. He was in handcuffs, on the floor against the wall in the back. Casey was next to him. Her eyes were red as if she'd been crying for hours, and she looked completely miserable. "'Max!' she whispered. "'Oh, Max, please wake up, please!' Max struggled to focus. His head was thrumming. "'Hi, Casey,' he groaned. "'I'm awake, I think. "'You left me. "'Back there,' Casey accused sulkily. "'No, I didn't, Casey, I swear. "'I I clipped my shoulder on a tree and got spun around, "'and then I got cut off from you by these two kids. "'There was nothing I could do, really!' You left me, Casey repeated. Max sighed. What could he say? He hadn't meant to. It was an accident. Don't leave me again. I hate that, Casey said quietly. Max nodded and didn't protest. There was a huge congregation of kids in the outdoor theater, maybe 200 or so. They were all ages, although none seemed older than 16. Some had on the same kind of motocross gear Max had seen earlier. Others wore jeans and leather jackets and some of the younger kids wore Halloween costumes. Most of the seats of the amphitheater had been haphazardly torn out of the center, and a huge bonfire was roaring, fed by all kinds of things that looked as if they were collected from a school. Books, lots and lots of books, but also student desks, teacher desks, chairs, etc. A group of kids were dumping garbage cans full of books into the flames and singing, No more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks. Some of the other kids were dancing around the flames, the lighting and the burning of school things. Others were throwing beach balls around or roasting marshmallows and hamburgers, and still others were standing in little circles, laughing. There was a cluster of Nerf footballs and beach balls simply hanging still, high in the air, suspended in the temporal goo of the pocket. These were evidently balls that had been kicked too high in the air, and they had cooled off before coming back down the whole way to earth. They were the pockets equivalent of getting a ball stuck up on a roof or in a tree. A small group of girls leaned over one of the entryways to the amphitheater and sprinkled glitter down into the air in the passageway. The glitter fell lazily and then cooled off and eventually stopped altogether in midair, forming a kind of suspended twinkling mist. The girls giggled as kids coming through the tunnel walked through it before realizing it was there and groaned as they shrugged it off. Every once in a while, one of them would look back at Casey and Max, say something to the others, and the rest would laugh and glance at them also. "'Oh, I hate them. All of them,' Casey whispered to Max. "'Are you okay?' Max asked her. "'Not really,' she answered. "'I'm scared.' "'I know,' Max answered, trying to think of something better to say. "'Well, at least we found some people other than us not affected by the pocket.' "'I miss my own bed,' Casey said dejectedly. "'I miss my mommy. "'I wish we were home right now with her eating a jelly and lemon sandwich. "'I hope she's all right,' Max nodded. "'I know.' To be honest, my home's really not all that great, but I wish I was there right now rather than here. I'd rather take my chances with Mr. Blisser than these kids any day. Casey scrunched up her face. Who? Max managed half a smile. Never mind. I'll tell you another time, when we get out of here. Somebody gave Max a soft kick. Hey, Max heard a voice say. He looked up. The red-haired kid had entered the theater from behind them and was now looming over him. He bent down and studied Max for a minute, inches away from his face. Max glared back. Another smaller kid with a wicked grin suddenly emerged from behind the red-haired kid and poked Max hard in the ribs with a stick. Ow! Max snarled. The red-haired kid laughed at his pain and started in on him. Bitch, you just want to rip my face off right now, don't you, kid? Pop my head just like a big zit. The red-haired kid rolled his tongue and smiled at him. Or maybe just stick a hot poker right in my eye. Max held his gaze but kept his mouth shut. This kid had baited him already once today, and he wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. The red-haired kid stood up straight and called down to the crowd. He's awake! Everyone turned towards them and cheered menacingly, hungry for more pain. Great, Max thought, feeling small and bruised. His stomach flushed with ice. Hammer time was coming. But then, a hush fell over the theater now as a couple of kids stepped out onto the stage below. Max noticed there was an oversized red sofa up there, emblazoned skillfully with the same snake and mermaid insignia he had seen earlier in town. A big kid, with dark long hair, wearing sunglasses and a long trench coat, jumped up and perched like a carrion crow on top of the sofa back. A pretty brown-haired girl sat down on the sofa cushion nearby, and another kid, with ill-cut brown hair and a prep school look about him, stood awkwardly on the other side, leaning and fidgeting against the armrest. And looking distinctly uncomfortable. The kids were cheering now as the bigger kid waved from the sofa. They all started chanting, Ace, Ace, Ace. Ace waved them silent and then spoke. My fellow serpents and mermaids, he began, and the crowd cheered like maniacs at the name. As you've all heard by now, we've got two guests with us here today. Ace paused and looked up at Max and Casey. The crowd collectively turned and looked at them also. Max groaned. Two kids in the back of the theater suddenly started chattering with each other and laughing, paying no attention to Ace or anything else. Ace zinged a tennis ball in their direction. It hit one of the kids neatly in the forehead with a wet, fleshy smack. The crowd erupted into laughter. Hey, you two! Zip it! Ace snapped. Both of the kids slinked back into the crowd, one rubbing his forehead with tears welling up in his eyes. The crowd went silent. Ace continued. This I was saying, in the years since we became free from school, from our parents, from all the rules, since I gave you the time stop. At that, everyone cheered even more wildly than before. But Max was thinking, a year? These kids have been in the pocket for a whole year? Well, that would certainly explain all their experience and skill with pocket powers anyway. But how could they have been in the pocket for a whole year? It had only been a few days for Max and Casey. None of this made any sense at all. And in the years since the serpents and mermaids were founded, we've never had outsiders dare come into our city. We've been happy here, haven't we? The crowd went berserk again. They scanned the faces as though daring someone not to cheer. We've been free! No more pencils, no more books. But today... Today we've had two outsiders, two strangers, who dared to enter our town. Ace paused for a moment for dramatic effect, eyes scanning the crowd. And then he yelled, But they sure found out what it means to invade the turf of the serpents and mermaids, didn't they? The kids went nuts. Ace knew his audience. And yeah, for those of you who missed it, the hunt was off the hook. Special props go to Suki, Leo, Sasha, Brit... Adolf and Enrico. And here, Ace pointed out each kid from the crowd, followed by Bimboy, Wild Child, and some of the other kids from Bombs. Everyone clapped as though these kids were sports heroes. Now, Ace jumped down from the couch and stood, pointing at Max and Casey. Bring them here. We want to ask them some questions, don't we? The crowd laughed, and a couple kids went, Ooh, in mock terror. The smaller kid with the wicked grin gave Max another jab with his twig. Ow! Easy stick, boy. We're moving, Max muttered. Max and Casey were both pulled to their feet and pushed roughly down through the crowd to the area right in front of the stage. Someone unlocked Max's handcuffs and then fell away. Ace looked down at both of them. Max met his gaze, and for just a moment, he was surprised to see what he thought was fear flashing across Ace's eyes, as though he and Casey actually scared him for some reason. But whatever it was, it was gone in a heartbeat, and Ace's emotional mass was back down. "'So, what are your names?' Ace asked. "'I'm Max, and this is Casey.' "'Max.' "'Max what?' "'Max Quick.' "'Quick, quick, you mean quick like a chicken?' Someone shouted to peals of laughter. Ace continued. "'Max and Casey.' "'Casey and Max. "'Brother and sister?' "'No.' "'Girlfriend and boyfriend?' The crowd laughed and whistled. No, Max replied, cheeks going red. Where do you come from? And who sent you here? Max was surprised by the question. Sent? Nobody sent us. Ace studied him. No, I think you're lying to me. No, nobody did, Casey said simply, coming to Max's aid. Suddenly, a new voice interjected. Well, aren't you a little nothing, said the pretty brown-haired girl sitting on the couch. She had been eyeing Casey, and this was directed at her. Casey glowered back. Ace laughed a little bit. This is Sasha. Sasha Foy. Sasha looked down her pug nose at Casey and Max. Well, don't you just love your little name? Casey snarked back. Now Sasha's eyes became slits and she glanced at Ace as if to say, I don't have to put up with this, do I? Casey took one more dig at her. Foy, Foy. Isn't that what they call that stupid, ugly little upside-down E with the two dots over it that's always in the dictionary? No, actually, that's schwa, piped up the prep school kid on the couch. Sasha spun on him, livid, and hissed, Shut up, Ian! Sasha schwa, tra-la-la, said Casey, delighted with this jingle. Who made those clothes, your mom? Not exactly baby doll, are they, said Sasha. Now Casey turned crimson and her cheeks burned while a fresh, delicious hatred of Sasha licked her insides. Quick like a chicken! Someone yelled again, to more peals of laughter. You mean not quick like a chicken! We caught him! And the screeching and clapping went ballistic. Ace chuckled and continued questioning them. So, where did you two come from? Starland, Max answered. It's a town a couple of hours west of here, near the ocean. Two days ago, when the time stop happened, we started traveling east to see what we could find out were to find other people like us who weren't affected by it. Again, something flashed in Ace's eyes that looked like fear, but Ian's eyes suddenly took on a hint of guarded interest. Wait, two days ago? What do you mean, two days ago? Ace said. Max looked around. You know, when time stopped. But already, Max was hearing snickering like this time frame was obviously ridiculous for some reason. Ace laughed. Well, that at least is a lie, and not a very good one. No, it's not a lie, Max protested. Everyone knows the time stop has been underway for a year now, Ace proclaimed. And everyone knows that I was the one who made it happen. Max was simply dumbfounded for a moment. It was such a ridiculous assertion to make that Max was having a hard time believing it had just come out of Ace's mouth. What? You're the one who stopped time? Max asked incredulously. Ace's eyes went wide with an expression of exaggerated indignation and amazement. Oh, you mean you didn't know? No, Max said, not really believing him. Ace was a bully. He'd intimidated all these kids, but Max didn't believe for a second he knew how to stop time. So that's why he's afraid of us, Max thought. He's afraid we'll blow his cover. Yes, Ace continued, louder so the other kids could hear now. One year ago, I set us all free. He glanced around and then shot a look at Max again. The kids cheered mindlessly. So, how did you do it? Max asked simply. What? Ace replied, blinking. Apparently he wasn't used to being asked questions. Stop time. How did you do it? Ace's eyes became slits and he wagged a finger at Max. Oh no! Nobody knows how I did that. All anyone knows is that my dad worked at Area 51 and there was like an accident. The special project that went wrong, that I had access to, like a backstage pass." Ace snickered and high-fived with some of the other kids, as though he had just said something amazingly clever. "'Come on,' Max said. "'Be serious. You didn't stop time.' Everyone gasped. Nobody talked to Ace like this. Ace himself was actually speechless for a moment. Max took advantage of this pause, addressing the crowd before Ace recovered his composure. Somebody or something stopped time. Don't you think you should be trying to find out who? Don't you think we should all be trying to find out what's really happening? Before something really bad happens? Ace's eyes burned murderously now. No, I don't. He jumped down from the stage and grabbed Max by his shirt. We don't. In fact, we're perfectly happy with things just the way they are. He shoved Max back and threw him onto the ground. Max landed in the dirt with a thud and all the bruises his body had acquired in the last day throbbed again with a dull pain. I've had enough of you two already, Ace spat in disgust, and the fear was back in his eyes. He turned to some of the kids on the stage. Sir, cops! Throw them in jail! We'll use them on another hunt tomorrow. Two kids wearing police badges pinned to their t-shirts were instantly on Max, snapping his handcuffs back on. Max didn't resist, there wasn't any point. There were just too many kids around loyal to Ace. But the prep school kid, Ian, studied Max with a burning stare, as though trying to see right through him. He looked like he wanted to say something, but he didn't. Max returned the look for a moment, and then he and Casey were hauled off to the local county police station, obviously taken over and redecorated by the serpents and mermaids, and thrown in the jail cell. Later that night, Max heard feet shuffling outside the cell. Hey, said his tentative voice with an English accent in the dark. Max looked up through the bars of the jail cell, half-awake. It was Ian, the prep school-looking kid with the ill-cut brown hair and glasses. Max didn't answer. "'Hey,' Ian said again. "'I, uh, came to talk with you two. My name's Ian, Ian Keating.' Max righted himself so he was leaning against the back wall of the cell, and Casey did the same, bleary-eyed and yawning. "'Oh, well, isn't that nice? Did Ace send you to keep us from getting lonely?' Ian's eyes flickered with fear at the mention of Ace's name. No, uh, Ace doesn't know I'm here. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, I guess we'll just trust you then, Max sneered. Ian hissed. No, really. Ace would beat me bloody senseless if he knew I was down here. The least you can do is give me a proper hearing. Max exchanged a doubtful look with Casey. Okay, we're listening, Max answered finally. Ian exhaled and then spoke very fast. Okay, here it is then. I want out of here. I want to get away from Ace. I know of a way to leave, to get around Ace's patrols, but all three of us have to go together. No, Max snapped. Why not? Ian asked, panicking. Because I don't trust you. Casey glared at him and he corrected himself. Sorry, we don't trust you. But you only just met me, Ian protested. Yes, exactly, Max felt his anger rising now. And when I met you, I had just been beat up by your friends, and you were staring down at me from some stage like I was on trial. And then I was thrown into a jail while you clapped and cheered. Casey poked him in the ribs and shot him a nasty look. Ow! Sorry, we were thrown in jail. So, hmm, let me think. Should I, we, be just a little skeptical of you? Ian was already sputtering in protest. But I had to act like that, or Ace would have suspected something, and I would have been beaten. And now, something in Ian's voice and eyes reminded Max of how he felt when Jack McNulty had beaten on him. There was that constant fear, the terror of the next day, when he would have to face his tormentor again and again. At that thought, Max softened somewhat. Okay, Max sighed. Tell me this, then. How did this place, the serpents and mermaids, this town, how did this all come to be? Ian began speaking fast again, clearly glad to have something to explain. Okay. So we all find ourselves in this time stop about a year ago. At first everyone was scared out of their minds, like it was the end of the world, because that's exactly what it seemed like. It was just a madhouse everywhere kids were meeting up and forming gangs. Some for safety, and some to be bullies. But they all figured out pretty quick that they had these, like, superpowers. And so they started roaming around on the freeways and towns and having these little wars with each other. It was all like a normal schoolyard, but the superpowers and no teachers put everything on a bigger scale. Kids could throw each other across whole football fields, punch through brick walls, run fast as cars. I mean, it was nuts. Everyone went crazy. It probably would have been a lot worse, except guns don't work in the time stop. I mean, thankfully, everyone had the same idea at first. Go get a gun, keep it nearby, just in case. And one by one, we all find out that when you actually fire a gun in the time stop, the bullets just dribble out all lazy-like, and then just halt in mid-air. So, everyone switches to knives. And then, in a few months, along comes Ace, saying it was him that did it. The time stop and all. He unified all the gangs, stopped the random mayhem... Since nobody had a better explanation of how the time stop happened, and mostly since Ace had a gang behind him that is way stronger than any other gangs, most everyone goes along with it. What well, we care anyway? No more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks. But I'm smarter than the other kids. I know stuff, like science stuff. I'm good with computers and how things work. My online hacker name is Apotheosis. In fact, you may have even heard of me. He stopped, as if though waiting for Max and Casey to recognize him as someone famous. When they didn't, and just kept giving him a blank look, he continued. Anyways, I know Ace didn't pull off the time stop, like he says, and he knows I know it. But he needs me, because I understand things, and he doesn't. So he gives me status with the SERPs. I'm a VP, and I help him run things around here. You know, make things work. The SERPs... The Serpents and Mermaids, Max said. Yeah, it was me who came up with the name. Ace has no imagination at all, so I think of things like that for him. He takes all the credit, though. And, and you're a, a what? A VP. A vice president. Ace is the president of the subs, and there are four VPs. I'm one of them. Is that stupid Sasha girl a VP? Casey asked. Ian snorted out a laugh. <laughs> Her? No, she's just Ace's girlfriend. Neither one of them will admit they like each other, but they do. I mean, obviously. Nevertheless, Casey smirked with satisfaction that Sasha was not a VP. Nice, Max said, and then switched topics. So, what do you think is going on? What is the pocket? And why did it happen? The pocket. Oh, that's what Casey and I call a time stop. The pocket, Ian repeated, nodding appreciatively. Cool name. Casey thought of it, Max said before he got poked again, and nodded in her direction, and predictably she beamed. "'So I have an idea about the pocket,' Ian said quietly, coming closer now. "'I was going to tell you about this anyway, so I brought this with me.' Ian's hand came around front, revealing a handheld camcorder. "'I'm really careful about how many times I use this thing, because I've got no way to recharge it. Electrical sockets don't work in the pocket, but there's still a little juice left in the battery.' Ian flipped up the screen and turned it on and hit play. Max and Casey edged nearer, staring through the jail bars at the little screen. There was a brief burst of static, and then video of feet, presumably Ian's, appeared. The feet were running frantically towards something. The video wobbled and shook, and then whipped up towards the sky, over a line of houses. The focus went in and out, and then zoomed in on a pair of lights, bobbing and weaving in the sky off in the distance. The lights danced for a few moments and then whooshed away and were gone in a streak, shedding sparks of gold and red. The video cut. Now, there was a blob of light encompassing most of the screen. The view zoomed back to reveal a roundish object next to a triangular object. Both were glowing reddish gold and were hovering in the sky over a jagged tree line. I know, this looks like every other UFO videotape you've ever seen on TV. The difference is, I took these myself, and I took them since the time stop started. "'Check out the eclipse in the background.'" And sure enough, there was the now ever-familiar eclipse in progress in the background of the sky. "'This video was shot from inside the pocket?' Max whispered incredulously. "'Yeah,' Ian said firmly and nodded, eyes ablaze. Now the video showed a group of eight lights flying in formation just above the horizon. The video was shaking as Ian was evidently whooshing as fast as he could towards the lights, trying to keep them in view. "'They always come from the east,' And return to the East, Ian was saying. I've got a whole tape full of this stuff. So you think the UFOs are causing the pocket? Casey asked. Ian nodded. Yeah, I do. I don't know why they're causing it, but it makes sense that they are the cause of it since they aren't affected by it. They can move around, just like us. What do you think they're up to? Max asked. I don't know. Maybe they're looking for something. Or someone. Or doing experiments. There's been a lot of UFO activity in the eastern sky since the park had started. It would sure make sense to stop time if you wanted the freedom to look around or do something undisturbed. So what about us? Max asked. Why do you think we're not affected by it? Ian shook his head. I've got no clue. Maybe we're immune for some reason. But I do think whatever that reason is, it's an accident. An accident? Casey breathed. Yeah. I don't think they meant for us to be unglued from the pocket like we are. I think it's a mistake. Someone overlooked or forgot about something. In other words, they don't know about us. Max and Casey and Ian looked at each other as these words sunk in. The hair on Max's neck stood on end. Well, what if they find out? Casey whispered. They wouldn't be too happy, probably, Ian said. I've been trying to tell Ace to cool it on the bonfires and the hunts, etc. I tell him we should be hiding underground, being a lot more careful. We should even be going on recon missions to see what they're up to. The UFOs, I mean. But he won't do it. He just laughs at me for being paranoid every time I bring it up. He's just having too much fun. He wants to have his hunts and party all the time. He thinks he's invincible now. It's gone to his head. So the Seps are going to get spotted by the UFOs sooner or later. Probably sooner. In fact, I'm amazed we've made it this long without getting spotted. The UFOs must be really busy with something. Either that or they're blind as a bloody bat. But in the last month, the UFO activity has spiked up noticeably. I've been seeing them more and more, and they're starting to get closer every day. Come a little further west towards us each time. That's mostly why I've been trying to leave, trying to figure a way to get away. I'm scared. Something really bad is going to happen when the UFOs figure out we're here, and that the time stop doesn't affect us. I know it. So you say the UFOs are coming from the east? Max said, thinking out loud. Yeah, Ian picked up the thought. For you two, only a few days have passed, but for all of us it's been more like a year. It's like the closer you get to the East, the more time-stoppish the pocket gets, if you understand what I mean. The closer you get to the UFOs, Max said, the slower time is, Ian finished, nodding. It fits. That also makes sense, if they are the cause of it. Max sat and thought for a minute, and then seemed to make a decision. Okay, let's say we buy your story. How do we get out of here? I'm sure Ace has kids whooshing around the borders of his little town at all hours. Ian nodded. He does. There's kids everywhere, guarding it in patrols, all the time. So how did you manage to sneak in here to talk with us? Casey asked. Ian smiled wryly. I'm a VP, remember? Kids take orders from me when Ace isn't around. Nobody gets suspicious if I'm going to question the prisoners for Ace. So, are you just going to order them to let us leave? Max asked, hopefully. No, Ian answered, shaking his head. That wouldn't work. Someone would report to Ace hoping to get bumped to VP themselves. Everyone knows Ace wants you two locked up. I've got a much better way to get us out of here. Ian opened his backpack and brought out a giant book. It was oversized, like a giant atlas, and bound in thick black leather, with gold vellum on the edge of the pages, almost making it appear that a gold block lay sandwiched between the bindings. It looked heavy in Ian's arms, and smelled old, but nice. This was an eldritch tome of some kind. A magician's book. Something not to be trifled with. You could almost feel the very atoms of the thing vibrating, drenched with unspeakable power. What, we're going to read our way out of here? Max asked sarcastically. But some dim memory of recognition stirred in him even as he said this, making his hair stand on end. Ian's eyes twinkled mischievously. Yes, as a matter of fact, we are. Without preamble, Ian pulled out a set of keys and opened the jail cell. Max and Casey walked out into the holding area, almost in disbelief at how simple their release had been. But Ian took no notice, and was already talking excitedly again. This is no ordinary book. See, when the time-stop, the pocket, first happened, there were a couple kids who died. We tried to... Died, Max and Casey said at once, horrified. Well, yeah. Each case was different. But each was also pretty terrible, of course. I mean, it was bound to happen. What, with no adults around and the pocket powers and all? Don't look at me like that. It's not like it was my fault they died. Sorry, Max said. It was just kind of a surprise when you said it, that's all. Ian glared at them for a second and then continued. One kid simply needed some medication for an allergy. And when he didn't take it, he died. We could go in any pharmacy we wanted and get any kind of medicine we needed in the pocket, of course. But this kid didn't even know what the medication was called or anything and nobody could figure it out. I mean, none of us are doctors. There's also been a few accidents. You know, kids have used their pocket powers stupidly. One kid went running right off a bleeding cliff before he could stop. another slammed into a tree at high speeds during a hunt. Things like that. Max winced involuntarily. Yeah, I almost did that. But there was this one case that was very, very different. There was a kid here who was, well, kind of heavy. Everyone called him sweetly because he was wearing this really cool baseball cap when he joined up with the Serbs. And Ace noticed it and said, Hey... Sweet Lid And the name just kind of stuck afterwards He was a great kid and all But also the kind of kid who would leave his head behind somewhere If it could come unattached from his body If you know what I mean When the pocket hit Sweet Lid kind of went crazy with his pocket powers Because for the first time in his life He could really run every bit as well as the other kids Sometimes he would run off for miles and miles Anywhere As long as it was far far away And then run back here All just for fun Anyway One day, he went exploring and he found this house. He said it was like the house was calling out to him, like he could hear it or something with his pocket powers. Yeah, Max cut in. That same thing happened to me, too. Twice, in fact. The first time, I heard this really, really loud voice OW! I mean, we. I said we, Casey. Stop it. Talking in slow motion, which I couldn't understand at all. And the second time, I heard Casey calling out for help, even though I was miles away at the time. Ian nodded in recognition. We heard that first voice, also, when the pocket first happened. And for us, it was in slow motion, just like you said, but not as slow as for you, apparently, because we could make out what it was saying. Probably because we were further east than you. Which also confirms, again, my theory on the UFOs in the east causing the pocket, by the way. From what we heard, the voice belonged to someone named Jadith, A woman. And she was, like, giving orders about how now they were here, Everyone was supposed to go out and look for something none of us had ever heard of before. The, the, the penchant, the pinch or something. No one could tell much else. Anyway, back to my story. Sweetlid heard something calling out to him from inside this house. So he went in for a look. There's nobody home, not even frozen in the pocket. But he finds all this stuff from Egypt. Pictures of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Little sphinx models, stone tablets with hieroglyphs written on them. You know. Discovery Channel stuff. And then there are all these books, lots of them. And he finds this one book and figures out that this book is what is calling to him. So he opens it, and, well, he's always thinking about food. And what do you know? On the very first page, he sees all these cakes and candies and things. In fact, they look really real. So he reaches in, and it turns out he can actually grab them right there on the page. But he can't pull them out of the book. So, before he knows it, he's actually inside of the page himself. Eating the cakes, one after the other. Stuffing himself, gorging himself. And they truly are the most delicious things he's ever tasted in his whole entire life. But while he's doing this, he told me this later, he's thinking about how it's bad for him and how they're all empty calories, like his mother always said. And he feels guilty for eating them. And the weird thing is... While he's thinking about this, the cakes aren't filling him up at all. It's like they're empty, just like he was thinking. In fact, he just gets hungrier and hungrier the more he eats. This is bad, of course. He can't stop. He keeps eating more and more. And he keeps getting hungrier and hungrier. Eating is just his weakness, and the thing's got him. Finally, he feels like he has to get away, or he won't ever be able to leave. So, amazingly he actually finds the willpower to put down the cupcake in his hands, and shuts his eyes and puts all thought of food out of his mind and wishes that he was out of the book. And it happens. But this was really, really hard for this kid. He barely makes it. I mean, he's all about food. But when he does get out, he sprints back here full steam and promptly collapses. A sense for me right away, like he always does when something happens he doesn't understand. So I go for a look. Sweetlid tells me what happened, but I don't believe him at first, not really. But then, over the course of the next few days, Sweetlid just starts shriveling up. I can't deny it, I see it happening to him with my own eyes. It's spooky, and he can't eat because he says no food will compare to the food in the book. But he's getting thinner and thinner at a really scary rate, like something's eating him from the inside. He must have dropped a full fifty pounds in one day he just lies there, fighting the urge to go back to the book and eat those cakes again until he's too weak to move, and then he just can't anymore, which seems to be kind of a relief for him. He doesn't have to fight with himself anymore. And then, a week after coming back here from that house, one night he just goes to sleep, and he never wakes up. Ian is silent for a second. Of course, Ace promptly freaks out. He wants to know what happened, how did he die? Was it some time-stop sickness? Will we all catch it and shovel up and die? I've got no answers, and I certainly don't tell him the story sweetly told me. So, of course, Ace beats me. After another week goes by, it's clear we're all going to be alright after all, and the kid did infect us with some new plague, and everything goes back to his serpents and mermaids normal, hunts, bonfires, parties. But I can't stop thinking about the book. I was scared to go look for it, but in the end, I have to. You see, we have to figure out what's caused the pocket. And I think I've done that. It's the UFOs. But why? This book seems like a clue I can't ignore. Sweetlid's pocket powers are what led him to the book. It's like the book operates on the same principles as the pocket and the UFOs. Like they all obey the same rules. They're all part of the same... Whatever this is. Anyway, it's just a gut call, but that's what I think. So I go. Sweetlid told me where the house was, basically. I sneak out when everyone's sleeping and make sure nobody follows me. Sure enough, as soon as I get close, I hear the book calling to me. The house is exactly like he described it, only I'm more careful. I look around some more first before going directly to the book. I know it's dangerous. It kills sweetly. I know it could kill me. I want to know everything I can before I go screwing around with it. I find all this stuff that says Jonathan Roseblood Serranus on it. The house seems to belong to him. Serranus. And all this stuff, the artifacts, the ancient civilizations things, is his private collection. And I get a sense of the kind of thing this Seranus is interested in. Anything having to do with ancient sorcery, magic, Atlantis, the pyramids, Stonehenge... You know, things like that. He's a nut for it. There's lots of pictures on the walls, most of them from a long time ago. All black and white, like the 1920s, with Model Ts and telegraphs and things they all of people on archaeology expeditions. There they are in the jungle. Then near a Aztec ruin. Then in Egypt, digging a big hole in the ground. You know, that sort of thing. He's searching the world for something it looks like. And all of this stuff in his house is his collection of and ends he's found along the way. And I figure it's stuff related to the UFOs in the pocket as well. For example, there's a series of enlarged photographs on a desk in a study blow-ups of regular photographs that show the inside of a pyramid or a tomb or something. It's all hieroglyphs everywhere on the walls. Now here's the weird thing. Several of the inscriptions show a bunch of people, slaves it looks like, bowing down to these glowing objects in the sky. And the way they're drawn, these objects, something about them is really familiar. Then it hits me what it is. They look exactly like the UFOs I've been seeing. If I had to draw them, I draw them just like this. So now I'm sure I'm onto something. What's more, I dig through a closet I find on the second floor. And there are like all these documents, I mean, really old documents, stored there. Like deeds for houses, property, stuff like that. And all of them are signed in the exact same handwriting Jonathan Roseblood Serranus. But here's the thing they all have dates on them from a long time ago like 1790, 1833, 1865, like that, up until 1923. And my heart stops because I realize it suddenly. What if Seranus is hundreds of years old? Which means he's not human. What if Seranus is actually some kind of alien that looks human, I think? Certainly would explain the UFOs in the book. It's some kind of super technology Way beyond anything we have. Then, the book is calling to me again. But this time, I decide to go have a look. I'm scared. But I know from Sweet Litt's story that whatever you're thinking about has something to do with what happens to you with the book. So I'm very careful as I approach. I'm thinking very hard. I want to know more about the book. But I want it to not be dangerous at all, in any way, whatsoever. And so... I open the book, and there, on the very first page, on a plate, on a table, in what looks like a study, is a little scroll, sitting there as if it's a snack or something. And so I get the idea, the book wants me to eat the scroll. The scroll is information. If I eat it, I'll know something after I eat it. It'll be like a little computer program, but for my brain. Well, I will tell you, with no shame, my knees were knocking like crazy. But I reached down inside the page anyway, and just as soon as I touched the little scroll, I was inside the page. I was inside the study. And there, on the plate, was the little scroll. I looked for a second at it, and then I picked it up. I put it in my mouth and bit down. It was bitter and sour. It tasted absolutely awful. It was like chewing mushy rotten wood. But as soon as I swallowed it, I knew I'd gotten it right. The scroll was information. And it wasn't going to hurt me like it did sweetly. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I knew things. Like, I knew what this room was for. The study. The study houses books with pages that link to other books and to other places. Like links on webpages. But these links were in the real world. And I knew this also. The books were created a long, long time ago. With knowledge handed down through the ages. Using knowledge from the olden gods. I don't know what that meant exactly. There was more, a lot more, that I knew at the time from eating that scroll, and I knew that once I left the book in the house, it would all begin to fade from my mind. I'd forget it all. There's something about some planet and magic jewels. That's all I remember now. The knowledge was like cotton candy, the way it dissolves and disappears in your mouth after you chew on it for only just a little bit. Well, I'd made enough of a discovery for one day, and I'd made it safely, and I didn't want to push my luck. I decided I had to leave the book now and think about all this, and it was pure agony, I will tell you, the thought of leaving all these books in the study behind, and of losing all the knowledge I'd gained from eating the scroll. I can't tell you now exactly what it was that I knew, but I do distinctly remember the feeling of, of course, that makes perfect sense, and I am going to be so angry if I forget this when I leave the book, which of course I did, most of it anyway, save what I've just told you. But I left the house alive, which is more than sweetly could say. I took the book with me, of course, and this is the very same book right here. Max and Casey stared down at the book in awe. So what do we do now? Casey asked. Like I said, this book links to other books which are spread out all over the world, Ian answered. Some of them are in that study, but where the study itself is located I couldn't tell you. I didn't stay long enough. It could be in a house next door, or in a high-rise in London, or a hut in New Zealand, I have no idea. But there are other books, in other houses and other places that you can get to using this book. So we use this book right now to get around Ace's patrols. We use the book to get to the study first, and then we figure it out from there. Max looked dubious. Sounds dangerous, based on what you've told us. You still don't really understand what these books are, or how they work you nodded. Yeah, that's true, but I think it's more dangerous to stay here. Look, I decided to take my chances with the book several weeks back. I could wait it out another few weeks, probably, and then go it alone. But you two don't have a choice. Ace will use you on a hunt again, probably in the next day or so. You'll be killed in under a week, regardless of whether the UFOs spot the Serps or not. So I see you two, and I say to myself, let's make a deal with them, and that way, I get people to come with me into the book, and they get a chance to escape and stay alive. Max nodded slowly. But why don't you just go alone? You don't really need us to escape using the book. Ian looked away for a second, ashamed, and then said finally, Because I'm bloody scared, okay? I'm freaked out about having to do this myself. I figure if you two are in on it with me, I can do it. We'll help each other. At least, I won't have to do it alone. Max nodded again and looked at Casey. She was nodding mutely back. They made a decision. They didn't really have a choice. Okay, Max said. We'll do it. Ian let out a sigh of relief. I was hoping you'd say that. Ian turned and left the room for a moment, and then came back with their backpacks. So, I brought these with me. I packed one for myself as well. Ian handed them their packs back, and then a pair of goggles each. And some genuine Serpents and Mermaids goggles for Bucket's superpowers running. We call that whooshing, interrupted Max. Ian nodded. "'Ushing. Okay, great, whatever. And lastly, take these.' Ian pulled out two long daggers, the kind the serpents and mermaids all carried, and handed them to Max and Casey. "'Don't be afraid of them. Go on. You'll thank me later.' Max didn't argue. He took the daggers and strapped one to his belt. He offered the other one to Casey, who shook her head no. Max was about to insist, and then changed his mind and stuffed her dagger in his backpack. Casey pulled her pack-on over her shoulders. Max and Ian did the same. ''Okay,'' Max said. ''I think we're ready.'' ''Go ahead.'' Ian nodded, sucked in a breath of air, and opened the book. Max, Casey, and Ian peered down in between the pages. And there, on the first page, was the study just as Ian remembered it. Except now, there were three children standing around a table looking at a book just like this one. You're listening to "The Pocket and the Pendant" by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and PodioBooks.com. The full book is available in Podio Book format at PodioBooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www dot pocket and pendant dot com